Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today I am pleased and honored to host my fellow podcaster, Crystal. Crystal uh, is the host of a very popular and absolutely great podcast, Stories from Palestine. Now, obviously, Crystal is not from Palestine, but is from the Netherlands. Crystal, welcome. Thank you so much. And I'm so happy to be on your podcast because I think I'm one of your biggest fans. <laughs> Thank you so much. Crystal, I want to keep it uh, like with all of the other episodes. So I want to ask you the first question, which is the same that I asked to all of my guests. What is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? Jerusalem is the place where my children were born. And I think that is my most strongest connection. It's the place, of course, where I live. I live in Beit Safafa. Beit Safafa is to the uh, southern side of Jerusalem. And it's actually originally a Palestinian town that became part of greater Jerusalem. It's between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Um, and I think that I've only really developed a connection with Jerusalem since I lived here and I had my children here. But before I moved here in 2000. 13, I've been to the country quite a lot. And I came to Jerusalem as a tourist and I saw it and I never had a strong connection to it because I felt it from the very beginning as a very strange and complicated city. I remember the very first time I came, I was very not knowledgeable about the situation in the country. And I just thought, look, there is a lot of Jewish people walking around. There are a lot of Arab people walking around. What is everybody talking about a conflict or a problem? They are all walking around the same city. And to me, because I wasn't aware and 
it was maybe superficial. Yeah, I would say superficially, everything seemed fine. And then when I started to be here more and I started to realize more about the reality and how people were not living together, but sort of apart, you know, they would pass each other and they'll be in the same space, but they will never have a positive interaction. And that's when I started to realize that, oh, this is really a weird city. And then, of course, there's lots of tourism in uh, Jerusalem, not now during the COVID pandemic, but before there was so many tourists. So you always felt that what is the reality here? What is Jerusalem all about? And I think that rather than diving into it, I kind of distanced myself from it. So living in Beit Safafa, I was always directed more towards Bethlehem rather than Jerusalem. And only in the last two years, because I started studying the tour guide program at the Bethlehem Bible College, and we dove really deep into the history of Jerusalem. That's when I started to really love the city, but I love it in the history, not in the current moment, maybe. So I really, because I think that the history of Jerusalem if you go back and you go through all the different empires that were here and that ruled over Jerusalem, you go back to the time of the Canaanites and then the Jebusites and then the Israelites. And then you, get, you go through the Persian, like the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Mamluks. And this one city has all of that history in one place. The history that Palestine has is you can see it, feel it, and read it through the history of Jerusalem. So right now I'm obsessed with the history of Jerusalem, but I hardly ever go to Jerusalem <laughs> because I have this love-hate relationship. Well, you're not the only one, and not only myself, and other, but other guests mentioned that that so much history, so many things going on that sometimes it's daunting just walking around. Well, at the other, on the other hand, it is a city with, uh, you know, beautiful places to go, nice coffee shops and uh, sort of a regular life. I'm curious about one thing. Um, this is a little bit personal, but you're Dutch. So I guess uh, listeners would be curious, uh, how did you end up in Bet Safafa? Yeah, it happened so that about 12 years ago, when I was 29, that's 13 years ago, actually, <laughs> I, um, I, I made friends with Israeli people in the Netherlands, and they were part of a group called the Anarchists Against the Wall. So they were people that were basically protesting against the wall that Israel was constructing at that moment and is still actually working on. And so through them, I came for my first visit to Tel Aviv, and they showed me the country, but they showed it, of course, only on the... Uh, let's say, western side of the of the Green Line, because according to them, I should not go into the West Bank because it was dangerous. So I didn't do it. And I saw Jerusalem and I saw Nazareth and Haifa and Akka and Jaffa. And then I went back to the Netherlands and I said, I, I missed out on a big part of what is going on there. And I want to meet Palestinians. So I signed up for an olive harvest program. And in this program, we were going to help Palestinian farmers with their olive harvest, not because they cannot harvest their own olives, but really to be a protective presence as many of the Palestinian farmers were being harassed or attacked by either soldiers or by Israeli settlers. 
So that was one thing that I went to do. And I also, they had excursions. So we went around the West Bank. That was the moment, Roberto, that I fell in love with Palestine. I fell in love with the people. I fell in love with the hospitality of the people and literally with the land. I felt that these people as natives of this land had such a strong connection with the land that I was really surprised on how resilient they were and how if there is this attempt to colonize the land and to remove people from it, they were staying there. Like I always say, like the olive trees are rooted in the land of Palestine, I felt that the Palestinians were rooted. So I was really wanting to learn more and I took a volunteer position. And after that, I had even a paid job uh, through the YMCA. And then in one of the visits, because I kept coming and going, I met my husband. And my husband wanted to start a cafe. And always my dream was either to have a backpackers cafe or a backpackers guest house where, because I love people, I'm a very extrovert. And I really like to be with people. I studied tour guiding already back in Holland. And, uh, and that was the idea is to start a cafe where foreigners can come, where they can feel comfortable and from where we can take them around on trips. And this is what we did. We started it in Beit Sahur near to Bethlehem. It's called Singer Cafe. And uh, we live in Beit Sofafa. Uh, and I can uh, explain later why, uh, but my uh, husband's family is from Beit Sofafa. So uh, basically we don't have a choice. We have to live in Beit Sofafa, but our life is mainly on the other side of the wall. Yeah, this is something also the other uh, guests explained that uh, sometimes listeners around the world may not really understand the difficulties of movement uh, uh, between what are villages separated only by three, four kilometers, two or three miles. Uh, and yet you have a wall, which also means you have to go through checkpoints, uh, obviously requires time, uh, showing documents, and not always uh, can be a smooth um, sort of a process uh, and you know and this is important to highlight and remind all of the listeners that there is this reality uh, which is impacting the life of many i want to ask you something because you, you mentioned tour guiding and uh, which is a uh, your current job essentially or you're studying so at the moment you are studying uh, the tour guide program at the bethlehem Univ uh, bible college i'm really curious because we already had a host uh, to tourist guides, uh, but we really didn't talk about how you become a tour guide. What do you learn about Jerusalem? What do you think are going to be sort of your highlights, you know, once you're going to establish your business and become a tour guide? What is that you're going to talk about the city? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you have to understand one thing first. You have the Israeli Ministry of Tourism and you have the Palestinian Ministry of Tourism. If you are in Israel and you want to become a tour guide, you have to go through the Israeli Ministry of Tourism program, which is actually uh, in Hebrew language. Only not so long ago did they start to open up uh, in English. And this is not every year. I think you have to, to find the English program. You go through a one-year program where every Sunday you do excursions and then you do a quite difficult exam. I just talked about this with my Dutch friend who is married to an Israeli guy and she did that 
And now she is a tour guide accredited by the Israeli Ministry of Tourism. And she told me that she sometimes is a little bit nervous uh, about talking freely about what she lives and sees here because she says there are many of her tour guide friends who are quite critical on how she thinks. They are quite in the Zionist narrative. And she said, I'm afraid that they would speak about me and that I would lose my license. But when I started to think about having a tour guide license, I could not imagine myself going through a program that has such a Zionist narrative, especially being married to a Palestinian, having all my friends on the Palestinian side. I know myself, I am not able to keep silent and I will be continuously debating the professors and the, the, the other students. So I looked for a program on the Palestinian side and um, they have a program that can prepare you either for one side, for example, the Nativity Church or the ancient Jericho, Tel El Sultan, or you can choose the Bethlehem area where you do all the different historical sites in the Bethlehem area. You can choose for the West Bank category where you learn about everything in the West Bank. And then they do have, and this is what I chose, the general exam, which consists all historic Palestine, including uh, what is now the state of Israel. It's a huge material to study. The problem is that in the Oslo agreements, they agreed that only a limited number, I think it's about 40 of people who studied on the Palestinian side and get their general license are actually allowed by the Israeli Ministry of Tourism to really work on the Israeli side. So there are there is a huge waiting list for the Palestinians who have the general license, but they can't actually work on the Israeli side. People warned me and they said, Crystal, in the end, if you get your license, you will be on that waiting list maybe forever and you will not be able to work on the Israeli side. I said, you know what, I, I will find my way how to work, but I do want to study this history from the Palestinian perspective. And if you ask me about Jerusalem, because I could, of course, I could hopefully work on in Jerusalem. It will be a challenge, I think, for me to speak openly and publicly about certain aspects of Jerusalem, because you will be in, the, in those tourist sites. Imagine you're standing next to somebody who is telling about, we're going to rebuild the second uh, temple, or it will be the third temple on the, the Temple Mount. And I'll be standing there, I'm like, Look, if you look down here on the square in front of the Wailing Wall, there was a Moroccan quarter <laughs> that was destroyed uh, in, uh, in order to make place for Jewish people to worship at this site. So we will have, we will be, we will be emphasizing different parts uh, of the history and even of the what people want for the future. But I, I feel it as a, something I can contribute to the struggle of my husband and his family to stay on this land and uh, to raise awareness with tourists who are coming to visit the Holy Land, to talk about things that other tourist guides would not mention. Many may think that a tourist guide is a fairly easy job. Perhaps in places like Rome, you may have discussions about uh, whether Nero was a, a good or a bad emperor. But in general, they would agree more or less on the history of the places, the chronology, uh, 
whereas when you move to Palestine, everything is contested. And uh, uh, obviously, I think you made a very important contribution here saying that there are different sides with different views. And even just the job of a tourist guide is uh, somehow weaponized, unfortunately, because it may support one or the other. But uh, uh, I, I personally want to share with, this, with you, I mean, many times I, uh, you know, just for my own work, uh, sort of uh, roamed around the area of a Christian quarter, particularly the Holy Sepulchre area. And, and I did this, which I know I shouldn't, you know, start listening to the various tourist guides, whether in Spanish, Italian, French, English. And I was being fascinated by the different stories. And I'm like, what's going on in here, right? Why are they yeah. telling different stories? Uh, but, but then I get it because it depends on the audience, particularly yeah. if they are American Christian Zionists, then they want to hear only one side, not the other. And if they are maybe Catholics, they don't really care too much about certain aspects, but others. And it's, uh, it's fascinating. It might even be disturbing. But on the other hand, it makes me feel empathy because as historian, I get attacked if I make uh, certain statements. But you too, mm. as a tourist guide, can get attacked because it's your way of seeing things. And I think there are way more connections when people may think between tourist guides and historians because we interpret facts and also we are involved as human beings and there's nothing wrong with that. So I do really appreciate yeah. uh, what you're doing there. Yeah, I also really try always to emphasize to tourists uh, because I, I started working in tourism before I did the, this um, studies. And I always tell them, look, I'm not this kind of person who is going to give you uh, the history from both sides. You know, I think you already know the Jewish Zionist perspective because that's what we already get in the media. And that's what we already learned since we were young. I'm going to give you the other side that you probably never heard because Palestinians now a bit more than before but especially 10 years ago, people did not know anything about their perspective and narrative. And I also say, I'm talking to you as Crystal, who lives here from my personal experience. You don't have to take my word for granted, but I'm showing you, for example, this is the wall. This is where the wall is built. And if you look further to the west, you can see that there are Palestinians living on that side of the wall. And if you look to the east, you can see that there are also Palestinians living on the other side of the wall. If you look here, you can see that there is a Jewish settlement and there are Jewish people living on this side of the wall and also on the other side. So the wall, for example, is not separating Jewish people from Palestinian people. It's just there and there are people from both uh, backgrounds are living on either side. So then people start to question, yeah, but why, then why did they build this wall? And from that point, I will explain more about the reason why they built the wall in that location. So I really want people to come to see with their own eyes, to start questioning things, and then I will explain it. And I think this is also the only way to understand Palestine, because I mean, even though the situation is not as complicated as people think, it's very hard to understand unless you are here. Like for me, it took me quite some time until I could understand the logistics here, because in order to go from place to place, you are passing through so many different areas, area like the Israeli area, then area A, where it's under Palestinian control, area C, which is under Israeli military control. 
and then you cross these checkpoints and some checkpoints you I, for example, the checkpoints that we take uh, that go towards the settlements, they never stop me because they probably think that I'm a settler since I am quite blonde. And then there are other checkpoints where they definitely will stop me because they're like, hey, if you are Israeli, you are not allowed into area A, so you can't go into this Palestinian territory area. So then I started to figure out okay, if I go into the area, I will go from this checkpoint. And if I go out from the area, I can take that checkpoint. Yeah, it's a, sometimes it's a hassle. <laughs> yeah. I think it's important to remember this lack of knowledge of each other. This is not obviously to say that they don't want to know each other, but uh, in time agreements like Oslo actually created a lot of damage because it created that sense that, well, then we must be separated. And as you mentioned earlier, like your friends in the Netherlands told you not to go to the West Bank because it may be dangerous. Uh, again, this is a narrative that was created. Uh, and, and the reality and the problem is, is that it does not really allow for people to get to know what's yeah. happening on the other side. And, it's, and, the true, uh, and the same is true for Palestinians, where at some point with the war are no longer allowed to visit uh, and cross that border. Uh, so therefore, they are disconnected and yet, I mean, everything shows that they're, they're together from basic things, whether the money, which is the same, the currency, the shekel, services, and, uh, and everything else, obviously, not to mention the occupation, yeah. the, the, the army, and so forth. So it, uh, it, it's fascinating that you are highlighting this, because uh, many people visit uh, Jerusalem and Palestine, the Holy Land, uh, with uh, preconceived ideas. They think they're going to see something but then the reality is different. It's good to, to know that there are tourist guides actually explaining that, that there is not just a, what's in the book, a church, mm. a mosque, a synagogue, but there are also these issues. And the wall is becoming part of, uh, of Jerusalem itself, of Palestine. I mean, in, in Bethlehem, it, it become essentially a, a touristic site on its own. Yeah, not only yeah because this of is the, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> now people are coming to see the wall. They ask, sometimes we get emails and people are like, oh, we have like a, a few hours. We want to come from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. We, we want to see the wall. And the, of course, they want to see the hotel that Banksy, the graffiti artist from England, he set up the wall hotel. Now he calls it the walled off hotel. And it's kind of also a joke with the Waldorf. They also have like Waldorf salad, I think, in the, in the hotel. But uh, he, 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 said, this is the hotel with the worst view, which is true. If you look out of your bedroom window, what do you see? You see a six, seven, eight meters high wall, which is actually not the separation wall that they built to separate Jerusalem from Bethlehem. It's another wall that was created around the tomb of Rachel. And she's one of the patriarchs. And on her way uh, to Hebron, she died. And there is a shrine and this shrine was always important for both Jewish, Christian, and Muslims. And actually now, the only people who have access to it are Israelis, Jewish Israelis, who can come from the Jerusalem side. And in order to create a space where they can worship and where they can park their cars, they did this whole wall in a sort of a square shape that is in the middle of Bethlehem. So that's what the Waldorf Hotel is looking out on. And of course, there are a lot of graffitis to see there. There is also the Aida refugee camp very close to it. So that's what we usually do. We take people to, to see the Waldorf Hotel with, has 
a very good museum. They did a museum there that explains the history and the current situation. And then we walk around, we see the wall and we go to the refugee camp also to give people the yeah, a little bit more idea about that part of the history and why there are refugees in, uh, in Bethlehem. Yeah, it's become kind of a tourist attraction. I remember watching a World Cup in Bethlehem in the Manger Square I think in going back to maybe 2004, something like that. So, uh, and the games were projected uh, uh, against the wall. I mean, you know, people gather yeah. in Manchester Square and then they, they move towards the wall and the games were projected there. So I, I guess it was a way to show that, yeah, there's a wall, but we can use it in different ways. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I remember I was like uh, surprised, but at the same time, it's like, why not, right? I mean, it's right there. So let's use it for something. Yeah, yeah. Is this different. is what I like about Palestinians. Their creativity, their resilience, uh, the fact that they, they are also super flexible, by the way. I think that there is part of what, what happens to them in this uh, uh, reality that also creates something that makes them a very special people because you all the time... You have to deal with the reality in which you cannot plan anything. You don't know what will happen. The checkpoint may be closed. There may be uh, demonstrations and tear gas. That there are now, like the last weeks, we had, the, of course, all this violence happening and the bombings of Gaza and, and then the rockets coming in. So you need always to be ready to change your program, to change your schedule. That's what is the big difference between myself now and 12 years ago. You know, I'm from the Netherlands, you're from Italy, so maybe you don't, I don't know how that is because Southern Mediterraneans, they are different. We live by the agenda, by the literal minute, you know, so we need to make appointments and in advance. Now, when I go to visit my family in Holland and my friends, I basically now have to start making appointments to see my own friends, which in Palestine, you cannot imagine this. I've had people trying to book a tour with me, they write me in uh, October, November, about April or May, and they want everything specifically in details. And I'm like, I don't even have an agenda. I can't think that far anymore. I don't know what I'm doing in April or May. So what I usually do is I just tell them, yeah, I think we can all organize that in the last week before your arrival, just send me an email by, by the beginning of the month of April. <laughs> yeah. We are going to take a short break. Thank you for listening. And remember to join our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram account. If you have a story about Jerusalem that you want to share, or someone that you want me to hear, please get in touch. Enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in north of Italy, so we are probably a little bit more continental, but oh, yeah. uh, no, we can't really schedule anything like that. <laughs> I must say that, I mean, that's one of the aspects, like, yeah, I mean, flexibility, I mean, in the end, it's, and it's understandable, I mean, what happened in the last few weeks, and you were here, and for the first time, uh, Hamas launched rockets uh, close to Jerusalem, so obviously yeah. that I mean, other than the shock is really also the necessity to be flexible and adjust to that new reality, uh, which maybe people don't know, but uh, those rockets were 
literally going to hit anybody. And, you know, they, they didn't look whether uh, like Jewish families or Christians or Muslims or Palestinians, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I feel like it's important to remind that those rockets scared everyone, not just uh, one section of the population. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, absolutely. And there are also many Palestinians, even from Bethlehem, for example, who work in Tel Aviv, they have permits and they travel every day to Tel Aviv to do a job there. So for them also, they had this experience now of, you know, the, the air raid alarms going off and you have to go into the bomb shelters. And I think that um, for me as a foreigner, I'm not really used to hearing the air raid alarms. I remember it in 2014, we had it a few times. And this time, I didn't know, I wasn't paying attention to the news, so I didn't know that Hamas had made um, an ultimatum. They actually said that if by six o'clock the army is still attacking the Aqsa Mosque and if the settlers are still walking around Jerusalem, we are going to hit. I didn't know this. I was pushing my son on the swing in the garden <laughs> and all of a sudden I hear the air raid alarm and, I, and first I thought, is it some sort of special day? You know how they sometimes do that on Holocaust Memorial Day or Independence Day? I said, I don't think so. And it was quiet and then I heard the first uh, hit, you hear like, and then the second one, and then the third, and then I, I told my son, Hadi, I think we are going inside because we have this one room that is better uh, protected than the, the rest of the house. And so it's a, like a cupboard. And my son, who is five, he was like, Mama, why are we in the cupboard? And I was like, well, you know, when you hear this sound, it's better to go to the cupboard. But I know that most of the Palestinians around Beit Safafa, 
they go up on the roof because they want to see where the rocket hits. And this is, I think, the big difference between how Israelis respond and how Palestinians respond. Because for Israelis, it's, I understand it's really scary. And you say it, it's true. You cannot know where the rocket will hit. But most Palestinians, they will be, they see it as part of the resistance. And so for them, it's like these people in Gaza who have been living under a blockade for 15 years, who have no army, who have no other way to defend themselves. Because for, you know, for Palestinians, they don't see it as um, an attack. They see it as a defense in a way, because they feel that we have been the oppressed people and this is our way of, um, of, of struggling. So most Palestinians, they realize that it's probably much more likely that you get hit in a car accident here than that you get hit by a rocket, because you know how the people drive here. It's kind of crazy. So yeah, they go on their roofs and they look, and this is what I see is like, I see on the settler road, because we live close to two settlements and there is a road that connects West Jerusalem with the settlement that goes right uh, close to our house. And I see people parking their cars, getting out of their cars, going to lay down on the side of the road. And on the other hand, I see Palestinians going up on the roof and they're kind of like, oh, where is it going to hit? So it, this is the, and I feel like I'm just the observer, you know, I'm like, uh, I don't know, like my husband is Palestinian, I'm Dutch, I don't know what to do now, let's go into the cupboard. <laughs> yeah. I, I must say that I, I admire your spirit, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very hard situation, and at the same time, I really want to agree with you in a sense that I, yeah, 2014, I remember I experienced some alarms too, I was in Jerusalem back then, and I had the same feeling where I mean, some people were just going on top of the roof to see what was going to happen. And uh, and I agree. I mean, it's very much to see. Uh, and as you mentioned, I mean, and these are statistics, which I always uh, uh, mention to a people that, you know, they go on and on with the question of the rockets, that there are more people dying in Israel for car accidents than in fact for rockets. Now, that doesn't mean that we justify the rockets. No. But it also gives you the sense of the danger. Yeah. And I understand it's scary, particularly for children. Yeah. I mean, they don't really understand what's going on. Yeah. But, uh, but on the other hand, you know, it's totally understandable and, uh, uh, you know, the, the different behavior. Krista, uh, yeah. I want to move forward to talk about your work, essentially. Your, can I call it your child? Because I, I, I feel <laughs> like a podcast is some sort of a child. Yeah. Yeah. So stories from Palestine which I want to remember all of the listeners, uh, is available on all major platforms. Uh, so whether it's Google, Amazon Music, uh, Spotify, and others. And it was also uh, mentioned as one of the top 20 podcasts um, discussing Palestine. So congratulations to you. Thank and I also you. want to say that I'm, I'm a fan of yours. And I enjoyed a number of episodes. And I just want to mention to the listeners the one on Easter, because really hit my uh, sort of interest about uh, how Easter, you know, particularly in Jerusalem, is experienced by Palestinians. Mm. So, Crystal, how did the podcast uh, uh, come about? Yeah, it's well, I think it's just like yours. It's kind of an outcome of the COVID pandemic. 
uh, for one. And of course, because I was studying the tour guide program, which I started two years ago and I just, we are just finishing now this week. And uh, what happened was that the, um, I had a lot of, because I have experience as a tour guide. So for me, studying was probably a little bit easier. I'm also older than most of the Palestinian students. And I realized that they were studying the material very factual. So they would be able to reproduce all these facts. Palestinians are very good in memorizing, much less in uh, using the information because they never uh, learned that in school. The Palestinian school system is not so much about critical thinking and using your information, but more about just memorizing it and reproducing. So I realized that I wanted to help them to create stories. And I'm not only a student in the college, I'm also a teacher. Actually, I was a teacher there before I became a student and I was teaching them the practical aspects of tour guiding. And that includes storytelling. How do you build up a story? The story has to have a beginning, a middle, an end. You have to create suspense and you have to make sure that your story is interesting to listen to. And so I started recording while I was studying myself, I started recording voice messages that I would send to the WhatsApp group of the students so that they could hear uh, the story. Uh, let's say that we, we are talking about the shepherd's field in Beit Sahur, where the shepherds were laying by night and they were caring for their flock. And then the angel came and they uh, announced the birth of Jesus and then how they walked up to, to Bethlehem. So how do you connect that story with what you see today, the architectural findings and the archeology span of that site? And then after I recorded these, I said, that would be nice to share these with a larger audience. And somehow in that time, I listened maybe to my first podcast ever. I wasn't a podcast listener before. And then I realized this is an amazing medium. You can actually share audio in this way. I Googled, I went on YouTube, I saw a lot of tutorials on how to do your podcast, and that's how it started. And eventually, like originally, I thought I will do, I will record the stories that I learned in the college. And then by time, I realized it's much nicer to have guests. And I should not, as a Dutch person, be telling the story of Palestinians. They can very well do that themselves. I can be, can give them the platform. Um, and I, I have a few episodes where I do the talking as a tour guide. And I also honestly usually do that when I had to study for an exam because it really helped me to study. So I, and the topics are very big variety. They're always related to Palestine, whether it's history or heritage or flora and fauna or food, uh, music. I had an episode with four musicians who also played, they, they explained about the Oud, the Ney, the Kanun, and the, they played the instruments while, uh, uh, while they were explaining. I had about the tra traditional Palestinian Dapka dance, and then I also used some of the music so you can hear what the music sounds like. And of course, for Christmas, I had a special episode about Christmas in Bethlehem which was really nice because we walked the whole street that probably the wise men took when they went to see baby Jesus. And we ended up in the nativity church in the area where the manger was. So I like to take the microphone into the field. We went to Batir, which is UNESCO World Heritage Site. And uh, not a lot of people know about that place, but it's an amazing, beautiful place where you can still see old Roman aqueducts and you can see how the water is divided by 
eight families. That's why they say that in Batir, the weekday has eight days, like the week has eight days because of eight families. And um, yeah, I mean, there are 40 episodes. I'm taking a small podcast break uh, now the coming weeks because I am going to visit my family, but people can listen back to 40 episodes already. Which is a lot of material. And, and I mentioned the, the, the episode on, uh, on Easter, but there's one episode that also fascinated me. And uh, that was an interview with uh, a local resident, uh, or I think at least the, the, the family is from Betsafafa, where you basically took the listeners for a tour of Betsafafa. So would you, can you just summarize it? I mean, Betsafafa is an interesting place because it's an in-between yeah. Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And, and so he's like, he's uh, a bit of both. He's like a bit of Jerusalem, but also a bit of Bethlehem. Yeah, it's a yeah, very yeah. fascinating place. Yeah, we went with Ahmed and uh, Ahmed himself is already uh, an interesting person. He loves uh, storytelling and he was very excited to take me on that trip. And we started on the roof of our house. And from the roof of our house, we can see the old Crusader fortress. So basically the history of Beit Safafa goes back, I mean, it goes back to before. They, are, they found some olive oil presses and wine presses from the Roman time. Uh, they found uh, a few things uh, even from Bronze Age time, but the village really started to grow around a crusader fort, which actually happened a lot in Palestine, where villages started to grow around a fortress because they could use this fort uh, in case of the necess necessity of defense or maybe to, for storage. And so from there, he explained me that the village grew from there and we live very close to there. And it's true that that's the oldest part of the, of the village. But what is so interesting about Beit Safafa is that in um, 1948, when the state of Israel was created, there were people in Beit Safafa who seemed to have had arms. And there were also some Jordanian and Egyptian troops. So when the Zionist militias came and attacked Beit Safafa, they actually found people fighting them back, which was most of the time not the case. So they basically didn't know how to really take over the, the village. And most of people from Beit Safafa did not flee like from other Palestinian villages where they just fled. So what happened then is when they started uh, the negotiations to have an armistice uh, agreement and they draw a line on the paper. And I don't know if people who are listening know this, we always speak about the green line. The green line is called green line because they used a green pencil to draw this line and to say, this is the state of Israel. And then there was the West Bank that became part of Jordan or under Jordan rule. And of course, Gaza under Egyptian rule. And also sometimes people ask me West Bank, why it's called West Bank when it's on the east of Israel? That's because it's on the West Bank of the Jordan River. So Beit Safafa, they looked at it and they said, through Beit Safafa, there is the train track, the train track that connected Jaffa to Jerusalem. And of course, they wanted that for their new state. But all those people in Beit Safafa, the Palestinians who were not Jewish, they did not need them in their new state because we know that Israel was created as a state for Jewish people. So they draw this line, this green line, right through the village over a, one of the main roads. And they actually not only drew a line, they came and they made a fence. 
So now in 1948, there is this fence that separates the people on the Western side and on the Eastern side of Beit Safafa. And we're talking literally about families that could not see each other anymore. I saw photos that people showed me because this is the interesting thing about the podcast is that I also have Instagram and Facebook and people come there and then they start to interact about the podcast episode. And there was somebody who shared with me photos from his grandparents and you see a wedding happening where the bride and the groom are on one side of the fence and the family comes to the other side of the fence to celebrate the wedding together, but they are separated. And the same happened for funerals sometimes where somebody from the family died and they could just meet each other on the fence. So th that happened in 1948. And then in 1967, when Israel decided to military occupy the West Bank, that kind of meant the reunification for people in Beit Safafa, because from that moment, they removed the fence and people could go and see each other again. But what I learned from Ahmed is that this disconnection of more than 20 years between people from the east and western side of Beit Safafa could really be felt between the people because the people that lived on the west they had been given Israeli citizenship they started to speak Hebrew they were connected to people on the western side they had jobs with Israelis while the people who had lived under Jordanian rule the only thing they had was a kind of Jordanian travel a passport. It doesn't give them citizenship in Jordan, but it gives them the opportunity maybe to travel. Uh, and they spoke only Arabic and they didn't know any Israelis. So for them, Israelis were only those people that they saw as soldiers. So even with until today within the village, you can sort of feel a difference between the people from the western side and the eastern side of Beit Safafa. And it means, for example, that my husband has cousins who have Israeli citizenship and they have a passport. They can travel whenever they want, almost wherever they want. But my husband, he has residency only. So the Jerusalem residency doesn't give him citizenship. He is, for example, not allowed to vote for the Knesset. He can vote, I think, for the Jerusalem municipality elections. And if he wants to travel, he needs a laissez-passer, and with that, he needs to go to an embassy of a country where he wants to travel to apply for a visa. So if he wants to travel with his cousin, which actually happened because they were both studying filmmaking, and his cousin is actually quite a famous filmmaker, and uh, they wanted to travel together, my husband couldn't because he didn't have enough time to get the, the visa. So yeah, this is until today, there is this difference in Beta Fafa. And we are going back to the original points uh, about the practicalities of uh, living in Jerusalem, which people sometimes don't really understand. There are all of these issues. It's uh, uh, decades of separation, uh, occupation, military control, uh, segregation, uh, essentially build up different identities within the same community. And uh, I think this is the first time I share in the podcast, but uh, a few years back, uh, teaching at the University of Limerick, completely randomly, I, I, I had four Palestinian students uh, in different uh, courses. Actually, one was not taking any of my classes. The interesting thing is that one woman was from Gaza, uh, two were from the West Bank, and a woman um, was from actually close to Bet Safafa, 
what was fascinating is that obviously they all defined themselves as Palestinians, but practically we had no connections because the person from Gaza obviously could not travel in the rest of the country. She could travel abroad. I suppose in time I understood that she had connections with the elites of uh, uh, Gazan society. Um, obviously those living in the West Bank had no major access to the rest of, uh, uh, you know, particularly of Jerusalem, living in the surrounding areas. And the student that grew up, uh, let's say in, in Israel, well, obviously she had freedom of movement. Yeah. And yet she didn't cross into the West Bank because that might be problematic. And so here I had four students sharing an identity, heritage, language, but effectively not being able to meet at home. Wow. They met yeah. in Ireland. And it was fascinating. We, we used that. Uh, and I actually must say that in a sense, I exploited, I know it's a big word, but, uh, you know, for some talks uh, and lectures, just to yeah. make people think about it and give a sense of the complexities, you know, documents, matters, you know, lines, as much as they artificial. And as you mentioned, and, and if, thank you for reminding us that a green line is green because someone used a green pen and it's totally artificial, but defines the future of people. And, uh, you know, for us growing up in Europe, what we saw is the exact opposite. People decided that those borders were not really good. We yeah. fought major walls. So you know what? Let's get rid of the borders, right? So I can drive from Italy, from my place in off of Italy to your place in the Netherlands, yeah. essentially, you know, crossing borders, but no one is going to check anything. And for me, the only difference is that first someone is going to speak French, maybe Flemish in the middle, and then, <laughs> oh, Dutch. And that's it. Yeah. And if I go through the German route, well, they speak German and whatever. Yeah, it's. I I don't the think first... people really get this point, and so your yeah, your, yeah. your view is, crude. I mean, it's so important to remind people about this. Yeah, the first time I took my husband when we were in Holland, he got the visa. We went to Holland, and I took him to Belgium. We wanted to go to, I think we went to Ghent. We are crossing a border, and he's so surprised that there is no checkpoint, there is nobody checking his passport, his documents. And he's like, I can't believe. And he just, he really, he literally wanted to just go back and forth. I told him, this is Belgium, this is Holland, we are just going. And he was like, I want to do this again. I've never crossed the border so easily. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And on the other hand, I remember we brought some Palestinian youth uh, to talk about the fact that they had been in prison, um, in an Israeli prison, as as teenagers and they came to talk about it in Holland and we wanted to take them also to see something so we went to the coast and we went to the sea to the beach and we walked somewhere and I told him let's turn right here and he said oh is there a checkpoint ahead and I looked at him and I realized that in his mind he thinks that there are checkpoints all over the world that this is a normality and I told him that no we don't have checkpoints in Holland and he was very surprised to learn that and then I realized how the whole Palestinian generation that's growing up here right now thinks that the kind of crazy situation that we see is normal. That's normal for them. Yeah. No, it's not. And, uh, and again, in your line of business, but also with academic studies, sometimes people 
think about Jerusalem as this place where you just go, you move around, but the reality of the local people is very different. And these stories should be told. And I think uh, awarding you, you know, as like one of the top 20 podcasts about Palestine, in a sense, it's deserved because these stories should must be told. It's not even should, must be told. People need yeah. to know what's going on in there. I mean, uh, there's too much, uh, you know, sort of a stereotyping about Jerusalem, the holy city, the holy places. Uh, and sometimes people just visit very quickly. They go to a church, they see the old city, uh, and that's it. But they don't grasp what's really going on. Yeah, I think that it's easier to through listening a podcast to learn more. And my goal is really to put Palestine back on the map for people to realize that there is a place called Palestine and you can visit it. It's not dangerous and it's beautiful. I'm glad you mentioned maps because I have one last question and it has to do with maps. In fact, it has to do with names. You have a brilliant episode dedicated to the names of the many names of Jerusalem. Al-Quds, Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, Urshalim, and then we can go on and on and on. Elia Capitolina under the Romans. Can you tell us the story behind the names of Jerusalem? Yeah, well, it's, it's good that I just listened back to the episode because it's been was one of the first ones. And it's also very easy to forget some of the details. But I was thinking I should repeat that because of my studies. Yeah, I am. Um, I, I decided to do that episode also because I thought that through the names, you can go through so much of the, of the history. And um, I realized that the name Ursalim, it was already mentioned in the Egyptian consecration texts. And I don't know if listeners know about that, but the Egyptians, and we're talking about 15, 1600 BC, they, they had this habit when they had enemies to write their names on clay pottery or on clay figurines and then they would have a ritual of crushing those to put a curse and so they found uh, pottery like that crushed in um, uh, in Egypt and it had the name of Ursalim on it so that's when they most scholars agree that that is one of the first written mentions of the of the city and then, of course, you go through the time, and by looking at all these different names, then we have the Canaanites who lived in, in the land here uh, that at that time was called the land of Canaan. And they lived uh, in what is now Jerusalem, and they were called the Jebusites. So Jerusalem was also called Yabus. And right now we have actually a cafe in Beit Sahur that is called Yabus Cafe. I never knew why until I learned that the, one of the names of Jerusalem was Yabus. And then um, as you go through the history and you read uh, all these different names, you start to understand one thing. That is that Jerusalem in particular, but actually Palestine in general, has been over few thousands of years, been ruled by at least 23 different rulers coming from Persia, from Babylonia, from Assyria, I mentioned some of them before, uh, until the Ottomans and the British, and now we have the state of Israel. But for me, learning about this made me so humble because I realized that we as people are just a blow in the wind in the face of time. We are now here, we now have the state of Israel here, 
this may also disappear as a ruler of the land. And there may be other rulers of the land. You know what's so important? The important is that the people, the people who live here, who are connected to the land, who work the land as farmers, who work as construction workers, who do their jobs here, they are the people of the land. And that's what I loved about your episode where it was said that it's not the people who own Jerusalem, it's Jerusalem that owns the people. And that really spoke to my heart because me as a Dutch woman who wasn't born here, but whose children are born here and who knows the rest of my ancestry will be living here in Jerusalem. And so I become part of Jerusalem. And right now we call it Jerusalem. You don't know, maybe in a hundred years, there is a new name. Now we have Al-Quds Jerusalem. It could again develop and change. But we as people are making this place. And, and I'm in a way now proud of being part of that immense, so interesting, beautiful history of this place, of this basically melting pot. Yeah, that's what I love. Like my children are super blonde and blue eyed and they are also Palestinians. You know, you cannot say that Palestinians look one way or another. You have Palestinians with red hair. You have black Palestinians, you know, in the African quarter in Jerusalem. I, I don't know if you uh, did an episode with them, but you should. The, there is an Afro-Palestinian community that they are super black. All of this between the color of skin of my children and those black people, that's all population of Jerusalem. This was Crystal, the host of Stories from Palestine podcast. Crystal, thank you so much. And I really wish you well with your podcast because it is really uh, fascinating and it's so much useful, as you mentioned earlier, to learn about Palestine and Palestinian stories. Crystal, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Jerusalem Unplugged. This podcast is currently commercial-free. There are no ads. The only possibility to stay this way is for you to please let your friends, your family, and others who may be interested in listening to Jerusalem Unplugged know about this podcast. Let's increase the audience and let's keep the podcast commercial-free. Thank you for listening. Until the next one. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.